Good morning. You're coming through okay? All right, cool. Well, good morning. So, as many people in this church know painfully well, it is currently the end of the academic school year. <laughs> Sorry to remind you of that fact. Both when I was a student and now that I'm a teacher, I've noticed that this time of year creates some conflicting emotions, both hope for a summer of rest and the despair that comes with papers and exams. Um, <laughs> but there's been a different experience that I've encountered as a new teacher that goes something like this. Step one, I assign a book or an article for my students to read. Step two, sheer terror. <laughs> Step three, deep ambivalence and confusion about the book or the article. Step four, an office hours visit that results in a cathartic moment of relief after a bit of fear and trembling. And then finally, step five, a renewed appreciation for the reading. Now, why do I mention all that? I mentioned this five-step procedure because perhaps this is how some of you feel about the book of Revelation. <laughs> what in the world is it doing in our lectionary? Uh, Maybe when it comes to this last book of the Bible, step five feels very far away to you, and you are stuck in the fear and trembling bit, right? So we're going to turn our attention to Revelation 7 this morning, primarily. But as we turn our attention to Revelation 7, I want to be sensitive to the fact that this might be an intimidating part of the Bible for some of us, and I include myself here. All the same, I hope that by God's grace and light, we can come to this beautiful passage this morning and discover a relief and renewed appreciation for it. In particular, I want us to see how it calls us to live lives patterned after Jesus. That's the, that's the big one. So that where he has gone, we go to. We're united to Christ, so where he has gone, we go to. So here's the big idea what I want to communicate to you this morning. Think back last week, chapter 5. Chapter 5 revealed that Jesus is a victorious and powerful lion, but who reconfigures power and victory through his reign as a slain lamb. And only he can tell us the meaning of all of history. That's something Pastor Ethan helped us to see so clearly last week. Now, chapter 7 takes that dynamic and teaches us that we are participants in that story by following after the pattern of Christ, a pattern of reconfigured power as weakness. And this ultimately is good news for the suffering and difficulty we will endure in this life. That's the big idea. So we began with the lamb who alone was able to open the scroll. He triumphed as a lion, Revelation 5 says, but only because he stands in the throne as a slain lamb. Importantly, a lamb who continues to appear slain. 5 and 6, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. But when we turn to chapter 7, we see that this pattern is applied to us. In the Bible, our lives are often depicted in terms of union with Christ. Where he goes, we go. And the pattern of his life, death, and resurrection sets the pattern for our lives, our deaths, and our resurrections. 
We are joined up with Christ. So just as the slain lamb displays his victory through his sacrifice, so also do we endure the anguish of this life in the hope that we will one day be victorious in Christ. In many ways, Romans 6.5 serves as a helpful summary of the point I'd like to communicate. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice the union that brings about both death and life. Christ has died and risen. Hallelujah. And we have been united with him. So our lives are conformed to his. Christ's death and resurrection are both the source of our salvation, therefore, as well as the shape of our salvation. There's, there it is in a thumbnail sketch where we're going this morning. But in light of this main idea, I'd like for us to think about three things. First, I'd like for us to think about the shape of our lives depicted by Revelation 7. We live lives in which power is redefined. Our victory is not achieved through the greater accumulation of power, prestige, or domination, but only through a tribulation in which we are preserved by God. Second, I'd like for us to think about the best practices for us to engage in as a community united to Christ. We are called to be witnesses, united not by national identity, but by our worship of the Lamb. Many voices joining as one. And finally, number three, we given that we are a community of witnesses called to victory through tribulation, I want us not to lose sight of the hope secured for us by Jesus, a hope that we can glimpse even now. It's in the future, but it's breaking through to the present. So first, how does Revelation 7 call us to, call us to envision, envision our lives? Now, this is an important question to ask because the way we understand the kind of story we live in will shape our expectations for our lives and the kinds of actions we are called to carry out. No, so imagine I tell you that you are now in a Harry Potter novel. Are you all familiar with Harry Potter? Yeah? So, suppose I say to you that you are, I'm the sorting hat, you are Gryffindor. Yeah? Chances are you'll know exactly how to act, right? Bravely, with nobility, and mightily. But then, imagine that I say that you are actually a Slytherin. Yeah? You'd have to flip the script, right? You'd be cunning, ambitious, and resourceful, maybe even a little dodgy. <laughs> the kind of story you're in, in other words, sets the expectations for your life and your actions. Revelation calls us to imagine ourselves inside that scroll that can only be opened by the lamb who was slain. We are characters in the story of the slain and victorious lamb. And the pattern of his life sets the shape of our story. Revelation is a book of sights and sounds then one of the sights to behold are colors. You read the book of Revelation, look for the colors and the sounds. Chapters 5 and 7 help us to understand our lives through the colors of red and white. In chapter 5, we see a white lamb. And white in Revelation and other places often represents victory. Yet this lamb looks as if it has been slain, continues to appear that way. And that blood, that red blood, purchased, this is 5.9, purchased for God persons from every tribe 
and language and people and nation. Now that will be important in just a moment, but for now I want us to see that this pattern of red and white, suffering and victory, is a pattern set for our lives too. The multitude pictured here, who are later described as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, that's union with Christ language, in chapter 14, verse 4, depict for us the expectations we ought to have for our lives. And because we follow the Lamb wherever he goes, we are therefore united with him in a death like his, as we saw in Romans 6.5. We go where Jesus goes, and because this Lamb has entered into death, so shall we. And the word our passage uses for this whole experience is tribulation, in verse 14. Tribulation. Now, though it may not be the first thing you think about when you think about the word tribulation, especially in connection with the book of Revelation, um, you are probably and actually all too aware of what this word means. A tribulation is a hardship. It is anguish. It is oppression. It is affliction. It is distress. It is the experience of being closed in on every side, and the space is getting tighter and tighter. It is the grief, pain, and sorrow that comes with living in a world that exists under the shadow of death, as our psalm puts it. To be human under the conditions of sin is to face tribulation. It is to grieve over the loss of a beloved sister whose life was an example of goodness and generosity, virtues that only compound the agony of her absence, as was the case with those who wept over Tabitha when she died in her Acts reading. The shape of our lives is one of duress, pain, and challenge. It is tribulation. And perhaps it is good to pause here for a minute, as uncomfortable as it may feel. Good news is coming, and it comes in our passage. But in my experience, Christians are often too quick to rush to the good news. That's a weird thing to say as a preaching, right? But no, bear with me here for a minute. (laughs) One might be forgiven for thinking that Christians today are people who are not actually sad about the genuine pains of this life at least not in public. There's often a need to follow up an expression of pain and lament with, but it's okay, God's in control. Do you feel that pressure? Or with some, you know, articulation of a lesson that you're learning through the suffering. To leave that part out, the it's okay part, would be to make the other person that you're talking to feel kind of awkward at best. And it might perceive might be perceived as a lack of faith on your part at worst. But this is not how Scripture characterizes suffering in this life. Suffering is expected in this time between Christ's first and second comings. And it really just hurts. Now is your time of grief, says Jesus in John 16, 22. And in this life you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. I didn't put this in my sermon. Just this morning, we got backed into the drive down here. You know, so tribulation. Um, But I probably don't have to convince you about the reality of tribulation. Our lives, all our lives are filled with it. All your lives are likely filled with it. But perhaps I can encourage us to do something else, to sit with that suffering, to lament together without turning too quickly to the happy ending. We have examples of this in places like Psalm 88, 
which ends by saying that darkness is my closest friend, the end. Kind of a bummer, right? Makes you feel awkward. Might be perceived as a lack of faith, but that's how we lament together. If we can meet our suffering and the suffering of others with transparency and hospitality, restoration can then actually be felt for all of its value. You see the good only when you fully appreciated the bad. But of course, Christ is risen and victorious, right? There is a happy ending. He has survived a successful assassination attempt, right? Think about that. And so we will be, and so because we're united with him, we also will be victorious. This is what we see in Revelation 7. A multitude of people dressed in white robes, yeah, right? having endured the tribulation of their lives and being washed white by the blood of the Lamb. They have gone from the red of tribulation to the white of victory. They are more than conquerors, as Romans 8.37 says. They dwell in the house of the Lord forever, states our psalm. Like Tabitha, they have been summoned to rise again, and this time for good. Just as we've been united to him in his death, so will we enjoy life with him in resurrection. Once clothed with white robes, we will look back and see that we have been sheltered the whole time by him who sits on the throne. That's verse 15 says. And knowing that this is how the story ends makes all the difference. In John 16, 20, which we read bits of just a second ago, Jesus also says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy all because he has overcome the world. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, has a famous essay called On Fairy Stories. And he characterizes this dynamic really well. Here's what he says. Our story does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. Our story does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal defeat, and is therefore evangelium, or gospel, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. That's Tolkien. In this passage, we are given, in Revelation 7, we're given a glimpse beyond the walls of the world, so that we can see that there is not universal final defeat. While we live on this earth, Tolkien used to say, we experience our lives as a long defeat, as tribulation. But because Christ is risen and the slain lamb now reigns, we can be sure that there is a better day coming. What are we to do until then? What are we to do until then? What kind of community should we be as we endure the tribulations of this life under God's shelter? This is the second bit I want us to focus on. Our passage gives us some clues. We see a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language in verse 9, gathered from the four corners of the earth in verse 1. There we go. Gathered before the throne of the Lamb. Revelation goes out of its way to note that the people of God are not identifiable through their national identity. This is important. We have already seen that the Lamb 